Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes. And I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. This is the Engaging Missions Show, Episode 232. This week, we're talking with C. Anderson about women in ministry, working through conversion laws, and more. What you had expected to happen hasn't happened, you know, and yet he shows up and he's faithful. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Thanks so much for stopping by and welcome to the show. We want to see the body of Christ fully connected and engaging in what God is doing. This week, we're going to be talking about women in ministry, working through anti-conversion laws, and some of the incredible things that our guest has seen God do. I also have a few thoughts for things that we could probably learn from some chess aficionados. And in my first ever segment about what would you do about it? I have a question where I'm actually looking for your advice. I'd like to give a shout out to Gordy, Jean, and James, who keep sharing our stuff on Facebook. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. That's one of the ways that you can help people know that they can connect to the stories that have really connected with you. I'd also like to say welcome to Felicia Adam and Howard, who recently joined us on Facebook. If you'd like to do that, visit engagingmissions.com and just click on the link for Facebook. Now on to our time with C. Anderson. All right, today we have with us C. Anderson. And I do want to mention right at the front that we're using a pen name for her security and the security of some of the people that she works with because she's working in some places where the gospel isn't readily welcomed. She was born in Nigeria, grew up in Ghana and Liberia, and now for nearly three decades, she's lived with her husband in Asia and serves in some pretty significant leadership roles within her mission. So C, welcome to the show. Thank you. It is absolutely my pleasure. Now, we'll get to know you a little bit more over the next few minutes, but before we start that, I did want to just kind of kick this off by saying your focus is primarily on disciple-making movements or DMM, but probably not everybody knows what that means. If you were meeting somebody for the first time and explaining it to them, what might you say? Yeah, well, disciple-making movements, or as we call them, DMMs for short, are a really exciting thing that God is doing in our world today. And basically, a disciple-making movement is a fast-growing indigenous movement of followers of Jesus that multiplies and spreads through a people group or through a region. So yeah, there's four characteristics that I think are kind of simplify it. It's fast growing, it's indigenous, and that means that it relates well with the local culture. It's not bringing in outside culture. The groups multiply and grow exponentially, and it's made up of obedient Jesus followers. So they they form into groups. Often they meet together in what we call house churches or small groups. There's a lot of different formats those groups can take, but those groups then multiply and start other groups and the gospel spreads rapidly. Often it'll start with first generation groups. So the first group started by a team or a church planner 
And then those groups, as those disciples are trained, they learn how to share the gospel and not just to share the gospel and add everybody to that one group, but they learn how to start new groups in their own area. And we've seen that that takeoff. So within a short amount of time, you can have, say, within two or three, four years, thousands of new believers. And the original church planner is training the first layer of leaders, but many of the people being trained as disciples would not even have any relationship with that original church planner. So it's super exciting to see what God's doing. Thousands of people coming to the Lord among the unreached. And yeah, it's something that is really making an impact among the lost, especially in unreached places. Wow, that that's great. I really appreciate you sharing that and breaking it down. I've heard some of the characteristics, but that's probably the clearest I've ever heard it put. So I, I really appreciate that. As you were sharing that, you you were talking about the four characteristics, and one that kind of stuck out for me right now, it's a little bit of a, a hot topic, is the idea that it's indigenous. Can you share a little bit more about the importance of it being an indigenous movement and what that means? Sure. Yeah, well, that is a really crucial part of seeing things start to go exponential as far as multiplying growth rather than just one church that maybe grows to three or 400 believers. But if you want to see reproduction, see things multiply rapidly, it's so important that people are able to identify it as their own. It's not something brought in from the outside. So you're using, when I say indigenous, you're using local language, you're using local forms of worship, you're doing things in very easy to reproduce ways for local people. So for example, in a lot of the house churches that we started and train people to start, we may use storytelling as opposed to using a three-point sermon and training people how to do that. Mm. And then within those stories, they're using cultural examples that make sense to them. And a lot of times this happens very organically and naturally as the movement grows, it's not something that you think about a lot in the later stages of the movement, but often is something that you have have to be quite intentional about in the beginning of the movement. Wow. I, again, I'm just, I'm absolutely loving this. I'm, I'm loving how the simplicity of the gospel, at least in my imagination, comes through in the ways that you're, you're using story and you're using the Bible in order to, to allow the culture to come through. But in the middle of that, all of the, the kingdom as well. H- how have you seen this kind of approach to sharing the gospel, making disciples, all, all of those things? How have you seen it make a positive impact in people's lives and in the culture? Yeah, well, it is making an incredible impact in so many places where we work personally and in also in places where we know of people working. You know, DMMs are one of those things, disciple-making movements, where we're seeing thousands of people come to Christ in a short period of time and be discipled in a quality way. So it's really exciting when you look at the big numbers of what's happening as far as seeing the kingdom move forward. But it's really about individual people whose lives are transformed. And, you know, I think that's where I see the most positive impact is when I I look at particular people. And I remember a young man who was in one of the house churches that we started. His name was Manoj. And he came to the Lord when he was about 16 through one of the staff that was working with us. And he was from a Hindu family. His father was a devout worshiper of Shiva And as Manoj got to know Jesus and had accepted the Lord, started to obey him, he started having influence on his whole family. So his father had been a real drunkard, drank 
every night mm. until he passed out. But as Manoj started sharing the stories from the Bible, as he was being discipled, his father would often listen. And then he came to believe in Jesus. He stopped drinking. He stopped beating his wife. He started saving the money that he had spent on alcohol and was able to rebuild their house. So they went from a tent house to a brick house. Of course, people in the community noticed and wanted to know what had changed in his life. His wife then believed, and then his other son believed, and the Gospels just started spreading through what we call the natural oikos of Manoj's life. Oikos means like the friend and family circle. And his dad, who had been this Shiva evangelist, now starts sharing Jesus everywhere he goes, and the community starts transforming. And this is really where the impact of a, a DMM is. It's in individual lives that are transformed and then how they impact the lives around them. And those people learn how to you know, follow Jesus, and they start sharing with others, and you see this exponential impact on a community and eventually on a region. That, that's great. You know, as, as a cultural American, somebody who grew up in the U.S., and most of my thinking is kind of shaped by that, it's so hard sometimes to get my head around the idea that doing something like that with and for one person can actually have such a powerful transformative effect that reaches beyond. Because, you know, our thinking is always you try to get the masses, you try to get the, the hundreds or the thousands or, or that kind of thing. And yet the simplicity of just allowing God to work through that really, you know, I'm, I'm hearing the story about Manoj and it made a huge difference. As we turn our focus mm. a little bit more toward you, one of the things I notice is it seems that you might have a history of ministry that probably spans some generations, but I'm guessing that God's call to you was pretty specific. When did you begin to realize that God was calling you toward what you're doing now? Yeah, well, that's a long story, so I'll try to make it short. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I was I was born, as you said, in Nigeria to missionary parents. I'm an MK, a third culture kid raised in Africa. And when we were, when I was 13 years old, we had to leave Africa suddenly mm. due to a coup d'etat and a, a military overthrow. Our family was evacuated. And so we came back to the States. I did my high school and college in the States. And I, at that point, you know, of evacuation and the things that we went through, I had sort of said, I never want to live in a place that's dangerous again. Oh. And so, you know, I, I didn't anticipate that I would end up in missions. But <laughs> as I <laughs> continued along in my journey there, and when I was about my second year of college, I was studying English literature at a university in Minnesota. And as I was at, in college, I thought, you know, I'm really, really itching to travel again. It's just been so long. And I thought, let me take a missions trip to Asia. That would be really fun. And my church will pay for it that way. So to be honest, my motivations were really not very good. But, you know, I thought, well, I can do some good and, you know, I'll get to travel. So I raised the money, you know, and, and went on a missions trip. And it was actually when I was visiting Thailand. It was the first time as an adult that I had encountered the unreached. I had been around them, you know, constantly as a child with my parents and their ministry. But when I actually saw that there were so many thousands of people who had literally never heard the gospel before, I knew that I had to do something about that and that the I had to be willing to kind of 
give up that vow I'd made and be willing to engage with with going to those who'd never heard, even if it meant that I might live in some places that were not as safe and secure as as I may have wanted. But yeah, it was really the impact of just seeing the literal need of so many thousands who had no idea who Jesus was that transformed my life. And I went back to the States and joined a cross-cultural missions program at a Bible college and changed my major. And that's how he called me. Wow. So so that experience that you had where you went to Asia and you saw that there were so many thousands of people who didn't have the opportunity or hadn't had the opportunity to hear the gospel, I would assume that at some point you kind of sat down with God and had a bit of a conversation about the, what you were seeing and what he was calling you to. How did that conversation go? Yeah, well, I I did. I I It was probably while I was still on the trip, you know, that the Lord, you know, I was sort of battling within my own heart of... I see this tremendous need, but I had these other ambitions and I had these other desires and I certainly didn't want to have to live someplace that was not safe and maybe have to go through the same kinds of things I'd been through as a, you know, a teen, early teenager. And, you know, yet I knew that, that I wanted God in my life. I wanted more of him and that that meant I needed to respond to the things that he was passionate about. The passions that were on God's heart needed to be the passions that were on my heart. And I definitely was feeling his longing for the lost to know him. And so I I kind of, yeah, one day as I was praying there on that trip, I, I surrendered and just said, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go and I'll do whatever you want me to do. And here I am. Take me, use me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's that was the beginning of that that commitment and journey that I've lived out now for, like you said, yeah, almost thirty years. Yeah. So, so you had that conversation with God. You went back. You enrolled in the the cross cultural ministry program or coursework at at the school. And then at some point, God moved you overseas. I'm assuming that everything's been puppies and rainbows since then. Well, no, there's been some times of tremendous challenge and difficulty throughout the journey, but there's been some wonderful times too, for sure. You know, I was going to focus on some of the times that God's really kind of come through when things seemed dark, but as I'm thinking about this now, you've also mentioned that there have been some good times. Can you tell us about one of the times when you've just been amazed at God's goodness? Yeah, well, there have been many you know, and some of them are things that are are significant. And they're small, but very yeah. significant to me. Other times where they've been things that you know others would consider significant as well. But yeah, I I I guess seeing God's goodness in the midst of the hard times and the ways He's come through for us is part of part of seeing his goodness. And yeah, I mean, one of the, the times that comes to my mind was when when we were we were working in, in an area where there's quite a lot of Christians in a small part of, of Asia, but there's a few states of the country we're working in where there was a high concentration of Christians. Mm. And then all in the surrounding areas, there were many unreached peoples, many, many millions of unreached peoples. And we had felt like God was leading us to to mobilize those Christians in that area to work in the other areas around and train, you know, train them to be cross-cultural missionaries within their own nation. But 
moving into other areas. So we had planned this large missions mobilization conference for them. And it was quite a, a challenge to plan that whole thing. We had about 1,500 young people attend that and, you know, we were on a very limited budget, things like that. But we had mobilized and there was a large, there were large meetings in the evening. And, and then suddenly, just about three or four days before the conference was to start, our keynote speaker had to cancel because oh. of, he found he had cancer. Oh, no. And so we had advertised, you know, we had promoted his name. We, it was, you know, and all of a sudden there's a situation where what are we going to do? And so we, you know, we prayed, we asked on what to do. And several of the people on the committee that had, you know, been planning the, the conference said, said to me, see, you need to, you should, you should speak. Well, I had never spoken to that large a group of people before. Oh. You know, we had 10,000 in the evening meetings. Wow. And, yeah. Normally I spoke to a couple hundred people it was like a big group for me, but I, I really, and I had zero time to prepare. It was, we were, you know, in the midst of planning this whole conference. But the morning, the day that it was supposed to start, I went to the stadium where we were having this conference. And I said, God, if you want me to speak, you have to give me this message right now. Mm. And it was like, God just came and the points were there. The scriptures were there. I wrote it down. And then ended up speaking in the, the final night of this conference. And literally, you know, thousands of young people streamed forward and made a commitment to go to the unreached. Mm-hmm. But it was just an example of how God is present in those times of crisis, in those times where you don't know what you're going to do. You, you know, <laughs> what you had expected to happen hasn't happened. And, you know, and yet he shows up and he's faithful and he provides what you need and shows up in his goodness through, you know, incredible ways. But that's just one of the many, many stories that comes to my mind when I think of his goodness, his faithfulness to fulfill the things that are on his heart, even through very weak people like ourselves. Wow, that that is incredible. I'm so glad that you you took the time to share that. <laughs> That's encouraging me. So thank you so much for sharing that. I did want to kind of shift a, a, a tiny bit. You're in Asia right now. And one of the things I'm thinking about is I've heard a lot about movements of people coming to Christ in places like Africa or the Middle East, often in places where it's sort of an Islamic context. But in Asia, we typically think think Buddhist. Have you have you seen significant disciple making movements in Asia? Yes, we definitely have. I mean, in in Asia, you have significant concentrations of Buddhist, Hindu, and Muslims as well. Especially if you include South Asia in what we call Asia. But yeah, there are many, many, many hundreds of movements, I would say, that are starting. Some of them are more advanced than others, but we've had the privilege through our ministry of being involved in seeing five or six launch in the last three or four years. Mm. And yeah, it's been really interesting and amazing and just incredible to see how God is working through just really ordinary, normal people who are coming to Christ and learning how to be disciples who make disciples and one story that came to my mind as I, you know, as I think of it is 
I won't mention the name of the exact place, you know, where this person was. I want to protect him. But let's just say his name was Raj. That's not his real name. But this leader named Raj, he came to one of our trainings as we were training people in DMMs. And he was a very dedicated Jesus follower. He was working hard to share the gospel with others. He had, he was from actually a Hindu background himself, but he had started several small churches already in various villages. Actually, he'd started about 10. So that's like, he was quite motivated, working really hard, but he had reached sort of the maximum of what he could do in the amount of time he had, you know, to disciple and work with those 10 groups. It was taking all the time that that he had. And so, you know, but he lives in this place where there's just millions of unreached people in his people group. So as we trained him and helped him to change some of the ways that he was discipling people hmm. so that those things would be simpler and more reproducible, he started seeing some real change. And he he also learned how to change the mindset of the people so that they wouldn't see him as the the guru, you know, or the, the one who would have to do everything, but they began to embrace that, oh, we also are priests of God, you know, the priesthood of all believers, that yeah. we also are disciple makers, that God chose us to bear fruit. And he taught them really super simple things, how to share their testimony, how to share the story of Jesus, simple discipleship set of stories that they could also use to disciple new believers. And within a very short period of time, you know, I think it was about two, two years, they went from, you know, 60, 70 believers to about 800 believers oh, from, yeah. you know, 10 groups to 70, 80 groups of disciples. And, you know, they started having a much greater impact. And Raj's work is just like one stream in a larger movement that has thousands of believers in it. But that's the kind of thing that happens with disciple-making movements. You, you see these people are super passionate, super committed, but they don't know how to multiply themselves and what they're doing. And as we train them, you know, towards multiplication, we see thousands of people start coming to the line. Wow, that that's incredible. And, and I'm so encouraged that you were able to see this guy who was was doing some pretty amazing things with a few a few tweaks, he was able to be much more effective and, uh, you know, not because of who he is, but because of what God was able to do in his life. And I, I really appreciate that. One of the things as we were kind of emailing back and forth about the show, and, and for those that are listening, I just want to let you know, sometimes we go back and forth with the guests, or I, I do, because I want to make sure that we're capturing the stories that that they can speak to, because we want to bring you the very best. And And one of the things that we came across is the idea that it seems like very often disciple making movements and this kind of thing is is a little bit male dominated that a lot of the leaders are male and i'm i'm wondering see can you share a little bit about why you think that might be yeah well that is a very big topic but you know why you know that question of why are why are things in dmms largely male dominated but I, I guess, you know, in conservative Christian evangelical world of missions, there's, there's a bit of a blind spot related to the role of women and the potential they have within them to be disciple makers. You know, Jesus was incredibly releasing of women. And whenever I talk about this, and I train a lot of both men and women as, as church planners and disciple makers, I love to use the example of the Samaritan woman. And how Jesus shared 
with her, who he was, and she believed in him and her life, you know, was kind of turned upside down. And then she went back and she shared with her entire village, her Mm -hmm. entire, the whole town. And many, many of those people came to hear about Jesus through this woman. And I think that's the kind of thing that that we've seen happen through women in Asia as well. And, And that God wants to do that there are women who he's calling and wants to use, wants to release into their destiny as disciple makers. And, uh, you know, really, if we embrace the priesthood of all believers, that means women, too, that they also have been chosen to serve as as his ambassadors and, and people who can can make a difference in, in disciple making movements. Yeah, that, that's great. As I was thinking about this, one of the questions I had was, you know, Everybody's different. Men are sometimes are different in some ways from women, but individually we're all different as well. And I'm wondering, are there any advantages that a woman might bring to the table in terms of training leaders and discipling and empowering people to go forward and share the gospel? Yeah, well, I think I was thinking, you know, women have so many natural connections in communities. I mean, I've experienced that personally, that as a mother, when I would go out walking down the street with my child, people are naturally attracted, you know, to start a conversation around your child and you start talking and interacting. And women are really very key connectors of people in a community. Yeah. You know, a lot of times in DMMs, we talk about how DMMs flow along natural relationship lines or through the oikos, through the natural connection of friends and family. And a lot of times it's the women. I mean, even in the States, it's often the women who arrange for that, hey, let's get together for dinner, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and make the appointments. Women are connectors wherever they go. And as mothers and, you know, there's different roles that we play that I think really God uses in, in spreading movements. We've seen that happen. I mean, a quick story that comes to my mind about one of the church planners we trained regarding women. Is that right if I share that? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there was this this guy, let's call him Dunbadur. He attended one of our trainings and we were talking about women and, you know, that women need to be trained and encouraged to be disciple makers. And so he, he got a hold of that and he went back and started training the women in the churches that he had started. And he trained them in super simple skills, like how to share their testimony and there was there were there were many women who were very faithful to attend church, but they weren't necessarily fruitful as mm. far as seeing, you know, people come to the Lord. But as soon as he gave them this super simple equipping tool, taught them how to share their testimony, they practiced a few times. And there was there was one woman that he trained who within the next month she led fifty people to the Lord. And, you know, 50 people in that unreached group became wow. disciples through this woman, you know, who who just didn't even know that she could be a disciple maker. But when this leader recognized it, empowered and affirmed her, you know, she she was able to see a huge impact in her community. Wow, that that's incredible. And, you know, I, I really appreciate that you shared the, the part about women very often being a connector. I can definitely see that in my family. If it wasn't for my wife telling me where I should go and, you know, get together with people, I would probably never get out. So I, I rely heavily on her to, to fill that role that, 
And I, d- I don't want to say that like it's a less role. It's actually something that's missing from my life if I didn't have her to bring that to the table. So I, I really appreciate that in her, and I appreciate you sharing that. One of the things that we mentioned early on is we're, we're using a pen name because sometimes you work in places where the gospel isn't readily welcomed, where there are security issues. Some of the people you work with are, you know, are in places where there could be significant danger or something against something standing against them if it were to to be known that they were working with you what what kinds of what kinds of situations have you faced and how are you able to work through those regulations to to walk in integrity and also bring the gospel with you yeah well it can be challenging to be honest to figure that out and you know i think every missionary who works you know, in restricted access or creative access nations has to kind of go through their own journey with God on that. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, you know, one of the things that that has helped me has been, you know, a lot of governments will say have anti-conversion laws. Mm -hmm. A lot of states and places where we've worked have had anti-conversion laws. And actually the legal definition of conversion is to use power or means to cause people to change their religion. Ah. And, you know, I I think that's wrong. I think it's wrong to use incentives to kind of bribe people into coming to Christ. Or, yeah. you know, sometimes we call those kinds of methods, you know, making rice Christians. I think it's, it's, it's wrong. I think it's ineffective. And it certainly doesn't lead to movements happening anyway. So... You know, I I can sort of join in my heart and say, hey, you know, I'm anti-conversion too, in that (laughs) sense of the the definition. I don't think it's right. And if I have a conversation, say, with a Hindu, Buddhist, or Muslim, and we talk about conversion and do you convert people, I say, you know, I think conversion is wrong. I think it's wrong to use any kind of, you know, coercion or any kind of manipulation to get people to change their religion. But I, I also think it's it's right for us to have the freedom to share. And, you know, often people will understand that, you know, that, hey, you're just sharing what God has done in your life. And you want to share that because it's changed your situation. It's given you so much freedom in life. And, you know, and you should have the freedom to share that, you know, people will say. So I think that's been a real help to me in my journey. But like I said, everybody has kind of their own journey um, with God on that. Yeah. I mean, so so I appreciate you sharing that because sometimes that can be a hot topic for for people who don't have a lot of experience with that. And we can kind of sit on the sidelines and wonder, how would I address that? And you've, you've walked through it. So I appreciate you t- taking the time to share that with us. We're going to shift our focus a little bit more toward our listeners now. And one of the things that I'm really excited about is that you have made some resources available for people, one of those being a devotional. Can, and, and we'll provide links for those for people that are interested. But I, I'm wondering, can you share a little bit about the resources that you've been making available for people? Sure. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, one of them is a, it's a 30-day devotional called Faith to Move Mountains. And I actually co-authored it together with another fellow leader named Kay Sutter. And it it's a 30-day devotional that goes through scriptures and tells stories that encourage your faith to believe that movements are possible and mm. that they're possible through you. And, you know, that's often one of the stumbling blocks is you hear about this thing of, wow, thousands of believers come to the Lord in a few years. Who wouldn't want that? But that could never happen through me. You know, that could never happen in my place or among my people group. 
And so one of the key first things that needs to happen in our hearts is for us to embrace that God can do this, that God is doing this, and that He wants to do it through people like me. And so that devotional was created to inspire our faith, help us to grow in our faith as we study those scriptures and look through that. So, yeah, it's been a a resource that yeah, a lot of our workers, maybe several thousands of our workers in Asia have used, and it's really helped us move forward as people have grown in their faith that God can do this. And so I recommend that. Another thing I have is a website at dmmsfrontiermissions.com. And that website also has weekly blogs that are, are put out to help people as they walk through starting pursuing a disciple-making movement. It's got other good tools on there as well. So, yeah, we're trying to serve and multiply, seeing a lot more people get involved in starting DMMs wherever they are. Yeah. So, so if somebody's hearing this and they're really interested in DMMs, maybe they're even starting to be feeling like they're called in that direction. They're, they're probably going to download the devotional. They're probably going to go visit your website. What would you suggest as the next best step for them? Yeah, well, I think visiting the website, getting the devotional, and then subscribing to the site also, because we, we then, you know, are able to be in connection with people and resource them. Um, we were there available to answer questions that people have. We have books that we recommend and other tools. And then, you know, eventually as they start moving through some of that material, then attending a live or online training and getting connected with a coach. I'm a super big believer in coaching. And it's, you know, we need help as we walk towards starting a DMM. And I think having a coach who's familiar with DMMs and understands them, maybe has seen them happen themselves, can really make a big difference as well. Yeah. And I guess kind of the follow-up question, if somebody's hearing about this and they're they're interested in in pursuing or perhaps moving toward the direction of disciple making movements what are some of the most important qualities that they need in their lives yeah well i think the first thing that i would say is a passion for the lost to be saved I mean, to see people encounter jesus and meet him and and have their lives transform without that passion for the lost a passion for Evangelism, now that doesn't mean you think you're a great evangelist, but you want to see lost people saved. That is one of the characteristics that has to be there for a DMM to really get off the ground. Um, A second one would be faith. You're going to face challenges. You're going to face obstacles, spiritual warfare, lots of different things. And so becoming a person of faith and confidence in God's ability and His promises is an important characteristic. Another one that comes to mind is perseverance. It, you know, it isn't something that gets started overnight. A lot of times you're going to have to experiment and evaluate things, tweak things. Maybe the the way that you were trained isn't naturally reproducible. Maybe it's not indigenous. So a willingness to evaluate and change and also persevere through those initial roadblocks that you hit. A lot of times you do see rapid growth, but it usually doesn't come immediately. Usually those first year year or two or even four or five can be times where you really need perseverance. And that's, again, where a coach can help a lot. But yeah, passion for loss, faith, perseverance, and a willingness to experiment, evaluate, and change in order to see fruit. Wow, that, that's great. See, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. This has been incredible. If somebody's listening to this 
and and they want to connect with you, we're going to have the the links for the the resources, a link to the website, things that you mentioned available in in the show notes. And I'm wondering if we wanted to take it a step further and pray for you, is there anything in particular that you would share with us that we can pray about? Yeah, just please pray that the things that that we've been learning and that God's been doing. Like I mentioned, we've seen four or five movements take off in the last few years. We want to see hundreds of movements start. Mm. The need is tremendous. You know, we have we live in an area where there are literally, you know, more than a billion people who haven't heard of Jesus and have no other way of hearing yeah. <laughs> unless a, they come in contact with a Christian. So we need to see rapid multiplication. So if you would just pray that the training that we're doing and the people we're training, you know, that it would multiply, that it would grow and many more people would get involved in multiplying disciples who make disciples. That would really be my heart's cry in prayer. Oh, absolutely. And for those of you that are listening, I'd like to encourage you to take a minute, pause the recording and do that right now. My experience has been that if I put it off for the night, there's a good chance I'm going to forget. And I don't want to forget. And I know that you don't want to forget either. So I just encourage you to do that. One more time, see, thank you so much for being with us. This has been a wonderful time. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. My pleasure. And thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's great to get connected with you. And yeah, I look forward to more in the future. So what can we learn from chess players? Well, before we get to that, I just want to say that I am very firmly of the conviction that God can work powerfully to reveal things to us, to shape us, to change us through the ordinary things in our lives. And one of the things I'm going to share just kind of came from that. So this this actually might end up being a short series because in this particular event, God showed me a, a few things, or at least I, I believe that they came from God. So I'll set the stage for you. Here, here's what was going on. A few weeks ago, as I'm recording this, I was helping another podcaster, a podcaster I'd never met before, and he needed to record some on-location interviews, some stuff at a hotel in the, in the Nashville area. He was there for a convention of chess people. Not surprising because this is about chess, but he was there for a convention and he was going to record a bunch of stuff in the Opryland Hotel. It's actually a gorgeous hotel. I've been there a number of times, not so much as a guest, although I have been a guest there, but primarily just to walk around and look at the amazing stuff. If you've never seen that, it's really worth checking out. But that notwithstanding, the event where he was recording was in one of their boardrooms. So this is a nice room. It seats about 40 people or so, wood paneled walls overlooking the atrium through the through the windows. Uh, really, really nice place. Not the kind of place I normally hang out. You know, I, I was comfortable there, but it's not my normally my normal spot. And as, as we were sitting in this room at the table, he would have come up a, a few people. He did about four interviews, four or five interviews, if I remember correctly. And he would have people sit down and they were leaders sitting down at this table. They were uh, parents, there was a chess coach, there was even a lady who's a chess grandmaster. And a as they were talking with each other, as they were going through this time, I noticed a few things that really stood out to me. And one of those that I'll share today is just how incredibly multicultural chess is, the, the, the chess community. There were so many names mentioned and so many things talked about where I didn't understand a word of what they were saying. They, they were using people's names that in, in a million years, I don't know that I could pronounce that name, but it rolled off their tongues like it was nothing, like it was their native language because they knew these people and they cared about them. You know, it's a competitive environment, but they cared about each other as people. And I really appreciated that. And 
I believe it's the same with us. The kingdom of God is a multicultural kingdom. It spans across cultures. It spans across nations. It spans across languages. And I I don't know if I can speak for you, but speaking for myself, I know that sometimes a little bit of nationalism kind of creeps in and I can be maybe just a tiny bit more proud of what happens when a U.S. missionary accomplishes something or when God reveals something to me or to someone that I know. And granted, there's that relationship there, but the reality is that People of different colors, people from different cultures, people with different languages are still my brother and sister, and I believe that I need to do a better job of celebrating what God's done in their lives. Certainly, there are some hurdles to cross because I don't speak all of those languages, but I just wanted to share this with you. My hope is that this was not something that speaks so deeply to you because it's already seriously a part of the fabric of your life, but if it doesn't, take it from me. This is something that God, I believe that God wants to do in our lives and in us because as we look out across the entire earth, God is working in the earth, across the earth, across all of the continents, in and through people who look like us and talk like us as well as people who absolutely don't. So that's my encouragement. That's what I picked up from spending a little bit of time with some chess people. This one's a bit weird for me. This is probably my first ever what would you do section, but I have a question for you and I'm really interested in what you would what you would do in this situation. I'd like to hear back from you. You can send an email to feedback at engagingmissions.com. So Here's the deal. About three and a half years ago or so, I had a guest on my show. It was a guest that I didn't know and who didn't come through a referral. Normally, I like to get guests for the show who I've either followed on social media and they really look legit or somebody that I know or who has been on the show has referred them to me because I really like to 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 have that kind of sign off, if you will, going, hey, this this person's legit. So I, I had this guy on my show and everything seemed great. It was a great conversation. We talked about what God was doing in that part of the world, really had a great time chatting with him. But now, a couple of months ago, as I'm recording this, somebody left a comment on the show notes page that I had for him. Then they said, basically, this guy's a total fraud, never sent him any money. And, you know, being the guy I am, I know that there's a really good chance that Somebody's just out there spreading lies. I don't know this to be true, but there's a really good chance. So I reached out to both of them. I reached out to the guest and said, hey, you know, somebody left this comment. Would you like to respond? Would you like to send any information to them or to me to basically say, hey, I'm not a fraud? And I also sent some information off to the the person who left the comment and replied to their comment and said, hey, you know, this is... This is what I've found online. And, you know, these are the things that I could find. I found a little bit about nonprofit registration, some some stuff like that. And it basically said, hey, you know, do you have anything to substantiate that claim? Now, here, here's the deal. Neither of them have responded to me, not the person who made the claim and also not the person who was the guest on the show. And, you know, as I was researching a little bit further, I found a couple things that kind of made me wonder a little bit. And that's kind of why I'm bringing, the, bringing this to you. And these these are things on his website that very well could be because he's either doesn't know better, doesn't know that it's an issue, or because he's trying to be a little bit fraudulent. And, and here's kind of one of the things that I found was that, you know, there are some trust links on there that say, hey, you know, when you donate, this is how we treat your money. And they actually link to the trust page of another organization. And it's quite possible that he doesn't know that's the case. Maybe he got a 
template for his website that had that already built in there. He doesn't know how to fix it. He doesn't know it's an issue. No idea. But that kind of made me wonder. And so that that left me a little bit of concern. And then, you know, kind of searching some other stuff online. Yeah, I found some information that seems to make it sound legit, but it's not, you know, there's not a lot of information either way. And so that's kind of why I'm bringing it to you. I'm just asking the question, if you were in this situation, if you had put someone on your stage or you had allowed someone on your show or you had brought someone alongside you and then somebody else made a claim about that person or this specific person in my case, what would you do? Would you, would you leave it up? Would you comment about it? Would you take, you know, in the case of a podcast, would you take it down and, you know, basically make it disappear? It's, everybody knows it's been there, but, you know, would you take that down because you're no longer wanting to link to that person? Would you make a public statement? What would you do? Is there something I've missed? Uh, I'd really love hearing back from you. My email is feedback at engagingmissions.com. I'd love to hear what you would do in this situation or what you would suggest that I do. I really would love to hear from you. I'd like to say one more heartfelt thanks to C. Anderson for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it, and I hope that you got as much out of this conversation as I did. I'd also like to say thanks to Jeff and Gabby for the work that they do to make this show possible. I very much appreciate what they bring to the table. So Jeff and Gabby, thank you very much. Show notes are available at engagingmissions.com slash C. Anderson. That's the letter C and the name Anderson, engagingmissions.com slash C. Anderson. That's where you're going to find links and quotes and resources to help you engage. Next week, we're going to be hearing from a couple who is currently in the U.S. and talk about what they're doing in North Carolina, as well as an upcoming transition to Central America. I think you're going to really enjoy that. Make sure that you don't miss that by subscribing to the show. Visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe, or if you visit the show notes page, just subscribe right from there. And also, please help us understand how we can improve the show and serve you better, whether it's an idea for content, maybe a guest idea, maybe something about the show that could be Improved. I'd love to hear from you, whether it's something that's great or something that could be better or something that's missing. Let me know. Feedback at engagingmissions.com. I would really love to hear from you. Thanks so much. Bye for now. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. <laughs>